following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy as we begin our next session. Uh, this is, I think, if I've got the number right, our 26th session, our 26th book we have discussed together in the Mythgard Academy uh, since fall of uh, 2013, so we've been going on here for a while. Um, this, of course, is a special session, uh, which is a lot of fun, uh, on Out of the Silent Planet. This is at the request of our colleague Jennifer Pope here, who uh, uh, got to choose uh, a book uh, thanks to her very generous donation to Signum University. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for your donation. So glad to have you here with us and uh, to begin our discussion of our first ever C.S. Lewis book in the Mythgard Academy, uh, which is a lot of fun. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Out of the Silent Planet is, uh, uh, is a favorite of mine. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Lewis's space trilogy in general, uh, especially Out of the Silent Planet and uh, Perelandra. That Hideous Strength is a weird book in a lot of ways. One of C.S. Lewis's weirdest. Um, there are many things I like about it, but it's a little but it's a little odd. Uh, but anyway, Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra are, uh, are are very are, are are just brilliant. However, and of course, it's particularly apropos for us to be talking about Out of the Silent Planet. Now, since we just have been spending so much time uh, with Tolkien in Sauron Defeated, of course, uh, in the Notion Club papers uh, and uh, the Drowning of Anadune, looking at Tolkien, working through his time travel story. Of course, you know, many of you are familiar with the, the sort of the famous story, which is the root of this book and, uh, of course, of that story of Tolkien's as well. Uh, the famous toss-up where, you know, uh, 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 Tolkien and Lewis, uh, you know, decided they were going to write a time travel story and a space travel story, and they flipped a coin, and uh, Lewis got space travel and Tolkien got time travel, and that became The Lost Road initially, uh, and Out of the Silent Planet. Out of the Silent Planet goes on, of course, to be published, and The Lost Road does not, because Tolkien doesn't finish it, and then he comes back to it uh, in... Um, uh, in the Notion Club papers. Uh, so again, we've, we've been talking, and of course, in the Notion Club papers, uh, Tolkien spends a great deal of time uh, critiquing, right? Critiquing uh, Out of the Silent Planet and Perelandra, um, uh, and uh, uh, and thinking about uh, uh, thinking about how that works. Let's see. So. Uh, so, having just talked about all those things, uh, it's really interesting to come back and look at uh, Lewis's sort of response to that. Now, one thing that um, uh, one thing to keep in mind is that um, we okay. Let's see. We're kind of going backwards in time. Having just come from the Notion Club papers, we're kind of going backwards in time, right? Um, uh, by like 15 years. Uh, so it's not exactly parallel, right? If we're thinking about, uh, if we're thinking about in the chronology of, um, uh, of, of their lives, right? Of Lewis and Tolkien's lives. Um, but um, anyway, 
So yeah, Stephen, exactly. We're kind of doing our own time travel story there uh, in uh, now going back. <laughs> it's just like how in, you know, the Lost Road and the Notion Club papers, right? We go back by, by generations, right, to the old Alfwina uh, uh, <laughs> and then the one before. Um, uh, so now we're going back, uh, you know, from the, uh, from the one space travel story back to the earlier space travel story. Um, Absolutely. So, exactly. So, Jocelyn, just to, uh, for those of you who haven't done it, of course, uh, you know, I'd, I'd welcome anybody to go back. The, all of our old uh, uh, stuff is available online. Um, if you go to our Signum YouTube channel, you can find all of our previous stuff. But the Notion Club Papers is, oh, let's see. We spent a couple months on the Notion Club Papers. So, like, my very brief summary of the Notion Club Papers Tolkien begins writing what appears to be a kind of joke uh, for the benefit of and at the expense of the Inklings. Uh, So he begins by writing a fictional parody of an Inklings meeting, um, which seems to be large. I mean, I won't say largely at C.S. Lewis's expense, but kind of at C.S. Lewis's expense. That is, they're discussing space travel uh, and uh, Out of the Silent Planet and Perilandra are the two things that they're primarily critiquing um, when uh, as they're discussing. So that's how the story begins. But then it uh, it folds into it. But then all of a sudden... Tolkien begins to invent the Adunaic language and uh, the Numenor story starts coming through and all of a sudden people are, we're now doing time travel and, uh, uh, you know, the Notion Club papers uh, becomes the inheritor of that story, uh, that time travel story that Tolkien began in parallel with Out of the Silent Planet, uh, which he originally called The Lost Road, um, and in which the time travel was happening uh, sort of generationally. Um, uh, but uh, uh, sort of essentially kind of through reincarnation, but um, the mechanisms for it were a great deal more complicated in the Notion Club papers, and I can't possibly just sum them up. But anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's the text I'm referring to there, uh, in which I know many of us who have been uh, following along here in this series together have uh, just been discussing here within the last six months. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, uh, Tomas, I agree. So it's kind of tricky. Uh, with some short books, you know, uh, Tomas is arguing with such short books, we could have treated the whole trilogy as one book at the Academy. Maybe, but the problem is uh, the, that Hideous Strength is not a short at all, uh, as Out of the Silent Planet and Peril End, it's a pretty uneven trilogy in that way. Uh, so it, that would have been a little bit harder. Um, but as it is, this ended up pairing really, really well with uh, uh, A Wizard of Earthsea. So we had two short non-Tolkien books together, and then, of course, we'll get back to Morgoth's Ring next uh, after this. Um, Yeah. David, that's a really great point. Um, uh, David says um, uh, he'd like to start by saying Out of the Silent Planet is one of my favorite book titles ever. It begs so many interesting questions and fires the imagination with only five words. And those questions lead into the story's themes. I agree. Uh, It is... uh, um, it is. It, it, it's a wonderful title. It really, really is. Um, uh, I think that that's. Um, I think that that's uh, uh, that's a really great point. One of the things that I would um, emphasize about that title, thinking about these first five chapters that we're discussing today, 
um, out of, right? Starting with out of. Um, it's... In some ways, David, I find it a kind of almost sort of mind-bending um, title, right? I mean, it's a space travel story. And often there it's about the destination, right? I mean, you think about one of the classics of this genre, certainly one which inspired Lewis greatly, uh, was David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus, right? And that's, to me, that's kind of the... Uh, a, a, sort of the standard model for this kind of thing, right? Voyage to Arcturus. It's about where you're going to, right? Um, I mean, where you come from, you know, the frame, right? You start at Earth and you go out somewhere else, right? Um, but the way in which the whole title is like looking back at the Earth, right? Out of the silent planet. Um, it's about a journey, right? But there's no reference in the title to where we're going to. and uh, uh, And instead, it is about like the whole like recontextualization of our own world that we get from going out of it uh, to this other place. So it's, I, I agree. It's uh, that's just one way of thinking about the title and one way in which the title affects me. So I think that that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. Veronica, I, I, I think given that in, you know, in the beginning we are getting space travel from earth to somewhere, it does seem that earth is the silent planet though. We have give, been given no clue as to why, we should think of it that way yet, right? And obviously we'll come back to that as we learn more later in the story. But um, uh, uh, but yeah, it's still just very kind of uh, 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 uncertain and tantalizing at this point. But David, I'm really glad you made that point because it is uh, it is a really wonderful title. Um, okay, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in uh, to the text here. One thing... I was very conscious as I was beginning thinking through how I wanted to start discussing Out of the Silent Planet, very sensitive to the contrast with um, the Ursula Le Guin story we just did, A Wizard of Earthsea. And uh, it's very different. The project of starting these is very different, right? And I I found that very striking. And it's it's one thing that... um, uh, strikes me as a really interesting kind of genre defining in a sense uh difference between the two stories right um you you'll you'll remember that although we finished on schedule uh with Wizard of Earthsea, we started off slowly uh and I, and that's even if you don't count the whole like half class we spent on the little poem uh epigraph at the beginning of the of the, of the book even not counting the poem uh we started off really slowly uh and were like hard pressed to discuss even one chapter per class at the very beginning uh of of um uh of that so um anyway it's there's there's a good reason for that right um and i'm i was finding in the first couple chapters really uh, of this story, there are very few passages that I wanted to talk about in the same way, right? And it was that was a, a very interesting sort of reminder of the important differences between, uh, as I said, there are differences that really are on the level of genre differences between the two stories. Why did we spend so much time at the beginning of A Wizard of Earthsea? Um, that is so much more time, why, you know, our like discussion minutes per page, you know, uh, 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 ratio um, was 
really low at the beginning and it got faster as we went through Wizard of Earthsea, right? And there are good reasons for that because we had to orient ourselves. The whole experience of reading a fantasy work like a Wizard of Earthsea is, you know, we find ourselves from the beginning, right? The, the curtain goes up and we're in a new world and we're trying to understand what is it. I mean, think about all the time we spent being like, okay, so what is magic, right? How does it work? What of the, you know, there's a, you know, there's, there, you know, the whole craft and power thing and trying to figure out what are the terms, trying not to take too much for granted and to, uh, to pay attention to how Le Guin as an author unfolds the world before us, right? This story is a story in a, a very different mold, right? Which is which is trying um, to do something quite different, right? And that is, it's following the model essentially of a traditional fairy tale, rather than that model. Um, what I mean is, and I, I'm I'm here uh, working off of Lewis's own observations. Um, and these are the ones specifically that he mentions in the introduction to that hideous strength, actually the third uh, volume of the, the space trilogy. Um, when he, he, he acknowledges that pattern, like the, you know, he says basically the, um, you know, in the beginning of the story, you're in familiar ground, right? Just like in a traditional fairy tale, right? You start off with like, peasants in the wood are like the princess in the palace and everything and you know things are kind of and then like you go into the you go into the deep woods and you you know you 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 meet the fairy or you uh encounter the witch or you know uh some the thing happens right that changes uh that changes things but we start with this kind of uh plain frame right and that's very much how this story begins. Um, as, as I say, it's very much the opposite. Instead of trying to figure out where we are, what's going on, right? We start off in a, with a, a very normal situation. It is, Jennifer, I, I agree, the perfect word uh, for the, the, the opening of, of this book is pedestrian. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. And Brian, absolutely. I mean, the, the, quality of their of their prose is 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 very very different um yeah brian says Le Guin could easily have told the entire story of ransom ransom coming to weston and taking the voyage in about two pages <laughs> while conveying the essential elements i think you're very very likely right about that um both of these writers are excellent prose stylists c.s lewis is a beautiful writer his prose is gorgeous i love c.s lewis's prose um and uh I have always found I have always found uh CS Lewis's mind extremely uh like I don't know germane to my own like I he just thinks the way that I think or I think the way that he thinks to some extent I find following his mind really easy for me um uh, there are a few authors for which I, I find that true. Um, and it doesn't mean I necessarily admire them more. Uh, it, it, it was a while before I kind of figured that out, right? You know, there were a couple authors. I'm like, why is it that I just like, uh, why do I think they're so brilliant? I'm like, oh, right, because they think like me. That's why, that's why, that's why I think they're brilliant. It's just because I find, uh, I find them uh, uh, sort of easy to follow. Uh, and they prioritize similar things to how I suspect I uh, would um, 
prioritize things. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, uh, David Atlee says in chapter one, when Ransom encountered the old woman who gave him bad directions to the rise, uh, which he then couldn't enter, my my fairy senses, uh, you know, capital F fairy started screaming at me. I had to remind myself that it's science fiction, not fantasy. Yeah, but you're right. Right. I mean, that moment and we're going to look at that moment in in, in a minute um, when when Ransom. Go, worms his way through the hedge, right? When he works his way past the boundary into the closed, uh, into the enclosure of the rise, he is crossing a border, right? And I, you were right to have your, um, your, are we entering fairy here? Uh, 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 senses kind of twitching at you, uh, because that is very much, uh, very much the shape of this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting, Jocelyn. I, I I totally understand. There are a lot of Tolkien fans who really dislike C.S. Lewis. Uh, my thing with the both of them, I love Tolkien, but my love for Tolkien is, I uh, I don't know, like, um, uh, my love for Tolkien is my love for something which is very different from myself. Like there is, uh, when I read Tolkien's writing and I, I read his story, I, I am, I am encountering a way of thinking and a way of storytelling and things that I, I would never do. Like that is, uh, that I find strange and wonderful, um, and wonderful in part because it's very strange to me. Um, with, uh, Lewis, I have always just sort of felt, uh, uh, sort of felt home. Bill McCain says he got more of a horror story vibe from the beginning. Y- uh, yes, in some ways. Um, well, that's a big topic. I'm not sure I'm ready to address horror as a as a genre, not least because I don't feel like I myself have a really good grasp on horror as a genre. Um, it's not that I haven't read things that fit into the horror genre, but um, it's not something I've thought about as a genre in the same way that I have thought about things like fairy tales and stuff. Um, uh, So, you know, I agree with David Attlee, you know, I too get that feeling of like, okay, we're crossing a border here, right? This is important. Um, uh, You know, I kind of, I'm, I'm expecting things are going to start to go sideways, right? Because we're, we're, we're crossing a border into fairy. That is, I, I come in with those kind of uh, genre expectations. I don't, I don't have them for horror. So I don't, it's harder for me to talk about that uh, in that way. But, um, but I totally believe you. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, Takako, I think is thinking something similar that it's uh, kind of like a Gothic story beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, Zach Komen is saying uh, that he find it's the opposite for him. That uh, Tolkien is a kindred thinker, and Lewis is a strange and fascinating writer. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I don't know. Like again, to me, it's. Um, I mean, it sounds like kind of creepy when I when I say it this way, but it's it's if you can kind of follow my uh, the metaphor. C.S. Lewis, it's. Uh, Reading C.S. Lewis for me is like talking to my brother and, 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 and reading Tolkien is like talking to my wife. You know, I mean, like I, I it's, you know, my, uh, my wife's mind is strange and other than I, and it's one of the things that attracts me to her. Um, whereas like my brother thinks a lot like me <laughs> and we have a whole lot in common. Um, and, uh, anyway, yeah, that's always been sort of my experience between them. Um, 
Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. You know, Nancy, there's a lot. To, I was I was thinking about um, I was thinking about Dracula uh, when thinking about the horror stuff. Not 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 only uh, uh, and not and not only because I you know of the uh, uh, the Netflix Dracula that just came out this past weekend, which I just watched. So I've had Dracula a little bit on the mind lately. Um, but um, I. Uh, but anyway, it's um, uh, it is interesting to do a comparison between uh, this and Dracula. I think there would be some uh, uh, some interesting things there. Um, yeah, good, good. <laughs> Arthur says twenty five dollars. Says my wife doesn't hear that quote. Yeah, I'm not. I think that she would understand and appreciate. Uh, you know, like me drawing this awkward parallel between my marriage to her and my relationship with Tolkien. Uh, goodness knows they're two of the, uh, two of the most stable long-term relationships I've ever had. So, uh, there's that anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) excellent. It's kind of like the difference between uh, the different uh, b- between uh, types of love and the four love ju- and the four loves Julie, but it's not exactly parallel uh, in that way. Um, yeah, <laughs> John Moss says, "If only we could ask Edith." Yeah, exactly. That would be interesting. Okay. Anyway, let us stop talking about the beginning. Uh, talking about let's stop talking about talking about the beginning and begin talking about the beginning of the story. Um, this is not the first paragraph. I think it's the second paragraph. But uh, I just wanted to just think about where this places us at the beginning. He walked fairly fast and doggedly, without looking much about him, like a man trying to shorten the way with some interesting train of thought. He was tall, but a little round-shouldered, about 35 to 40 years of age, and dressed with, what, with that particular kind of shabbiness which marks a member of the intelligentsia on a holiday. He might easily have been mistaken for a doctor or a schoolmaster at first sight, though he had not the -the man-of-the-world air of the one or the indefinable breeziness of the other. In fact, he was a philologist and fellow of a Cambridge college. His name was Ransom. Okay. Um, What do we get? So, Arthur, I think the doctor is the -the man-of-the-world heir, right? Which I think, there you go. Um, Uh... But uh, I'm not quite sure about the indefinable breeziness, right? Um, of course, in large part here, we have uh, Lewis making fun partially of himself, right? I mean, the, the, you know, Ransom is, uh, uh, you know, a don in his general uh, area of study. That is, you know, he's, he's a philologist and not a literary guy, which, of course, as you may know, uh, you know, at Oxford... In the th- in the thirties, meant something important, right? It meant you were on the other side of the fence, but but it's an internal fence, right? I mean, this is a fence within uh, uh, within the sort of one particular school. Certainly, <clears throat> the philologists and the lit people, I uh, you know, worked had more in common than they did with like the mathematicians, for instance. Um, but. Um, yeah, so like when he's, oh, he talks about things like that particular kind of shabbiness, which marks a member of the intelligentsia on a holiday, uh, you know, he, again, he's being uh, 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 sort of uh, self, self, 
referential there. Um, yeah, Brian, I also have always sort of suspected a subtle Oxford Cambridge joke here and that I wasn't getting it. Yes, I, I suspect so too. Um, I've, I've always been vaguely suspicious of that uh, in that in that line. And uh, uh, Darlonio, you're absolutely right. Our he- you don't often hear our hero, the philologist, right? And of course, it's hard to ignore the fact that uh, the protagonist of this book that he wrote as a result of the, uh, you know, the bet that he made with Tolkien, you know, the coin flip that he made with Tolkien. Uh, and he chooses that the space travel story is going to tell his hero is going to be a philologist. And so from the beginning, you know, knowing that bit of, you know, external uh, information from the text, it's kind of hard not to connect Ransom with Tolkien in some ways. Um, I don't think that that's an I'm not going to be doing an autobiographical connection. Ransom isn't Tolkien. um, And, uh, you know, I guess that's not going to be a a major element in our discussions here. But again, it's kind of hard to ignore uh, that connection. And um, personally, I think if there's anything that this explains, it explains why Lewis's stories were the butt of the Notion Club papers, because, uh, you know, Lewis has kind of made, in a sense, made Tolkien the butt uh, of, uh, of of his books, in a sense. Um, but, um, okay, good. Um, good. Uh yeah, Stephen says, I don't know that I would ever have thought of the way someone walks as being indicative of trying to shorten the way with some interesting train of thought. And yet I, I think I can picture exactly what Lewis means. Yes, um, fairly fast and doggedly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was reminded, uh, and I don't know if this was just random on my part or not, um, it's entirely possible that it was. Does anybody recognize my subtitle? His book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. Uh, his face away from his own home, of course, comes before that. Anybody recognize it? Right? Special. Yeah, very good. Very good. Stephen, uh, David, Rachel, uh, Edith Aldora. Yes, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress. I, I was um, the... This is something I want to think about a little bit more. Um, uh, not necessarily just like spontaneously in class here, but uh, it's a connection that struck me this time reading through as something. I think that there's something there, uh, actually. The parallel between Ransom and Christian at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, of course, was a, a, a book that uh, Lewis knew well and admired very much. Um, and I'm not, again, I, I'm certainly not trying to say that Out of the Silent Planet is an allegory in the way in which uh, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. But the parallel at the beginning seems to me important. That is, the man uh, alone, you know, walking alone with his face away from his home, a great burden on his back. He doesn't literally carry a book in his hand, right? But of course, he's a, a, he is a very bookish person. And here, of course, it's like he's carrying, um, Stephen, it's like he's carrying a book in his mind, right? Uh, uh, rather than in his hand. Um, but this, this parallel at the start strikes me as important, I think. Um, when Ran- Ransom is setting out on a journey, the similarities um, 
the um, the similarities between um, uh, uh, between their positions at the beginning are to me actually so they're sort of superficial, right? Uh, quite superficial. I mean, the burden upon his back is not the burden of his knowledge of his own sin, as it is in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, but rather just literally his pack, right, that he's carrying and trying to uh, resettle it more comfortably on his shoulders as he comes to the end of his long day. Um, Yes, Brian, I think the first thing that suggested the connection to me is his capitalization, Lewis's capitalization of the P in pedestrian. Right. And I think the first paragraph uh, of the story, um, I think that was that was the very um, uh, that was the very first thing. And Zach, yes. Then having thought in this like briefly in this kind of quasi allegorical way about it, the name Ransom itself does invite a kind of allegorical reading. Or again, it, 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 it kind of raises it. I'm not I'm not going to do an allegorical reading of this. Um, but but again, it just it sort of struck me. But having thought, ha- having made that connection, right, having uh, having having started thinking about Christian at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress and Ransom at the beginning of the Silent Planet, what chiefly struck me the more I thought about it was, of course, the contrast between them, or at least the apparent contrast between them. Um, Christian uh, at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress is is trying to flee from the city of destruction, right? And the whole sort of function of Christian's journey is that it's it's um, it's focused, right? There is a destination. Um, his journey is, I mean, it's not that he doesn't wander, but like it's bad when he does, right? But what he is not doing, what um, Christian is not doing is going on an adventure, right? He's on a journey and things are going to happen to him along the way, but he's not just seeking adventure. He's not just... He's not wandering, right? Uh, <laughs> not all who lost wander, I guess. Uh, but anyway, he's not wandering. He's got he's got a path, uh, and of course, then I'm like, all right, you know, he, the, he's got to squeeze through the wicket gate, right? Like uh, uh, like um, uh, ransom worms his way through the hedge. So I, I kept coming back to it uh, as I was reading these early chapters. But again, the interesting thing, ransom uh, begins the story not troubled at heart like Christian, you know, uh, pushed internally outwards uh, to that journey. Instead, he's at peace. He's on holiday, right? Uh, I mean, he's having a, a kind of a disappointment on this day, right? That he, you know, wasn't able to stay at the inn that he had planned to stay on. So now he's, uh, you know, he's walking off into the night, uh, not sure where he's going to be able to stay that night and kind of tired. So, you know, it's not like the most comfortable moment ever, but it's seriously like he's not fleeing from the city of destruction here, nor is he on anything like a linear journey. In fact, the whole point of his journey, as he explains to Divine, is just to go wherever he wants to for no reason at all. Right. Just to be free to wander in any way with no destination and no itinerary um, really of any kind. Um, And so that, of course, is very, very different. And yet I think. That might be what Ransom thinks he's doing, right? Uh, but I don't think that that is indeed what Ransom ends up doing, right? I think that the it turns out it, we 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 come to see that the truth is other than uh, uh, than Ransom himself believes, um, because uh, uh, he might not. Uh, 
he has no idea of the journey that's about to happen to him, right? And in that way, again, uh, uh, David, I come back to the fairy stuff, right? It's like when you're going, you're, you're, wa- you're walking out through the woods, right, through the forest, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in fairy, right? You find yourself somewhere else. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so that's... Um, uh, seems to be uh, another thing that's kind of at play. But again, there's, I think, there is a kind of calling. There is a kind of destination uh, here. Uh, Yeah, interesting. David says, in his contentedness, he's more like Bilbo at the beginning of Bilbo's story. (laughs) If Bilbo had been drugged and kidnapped (laughs) by the dwarves. Yeah, he's he's not quite. But he is kind of overtaken by adventure in a similar way. And by the way, of course, that's a really... Um, the the Hobbit, of course, follows that same kind of uh, fairy tale trope, right? Starting in sort of familiar, it's different circumstances, right? I mean, these are hobbits, not humans, so uh, there's an adjustment, but still, there's much more of the air uh, of the familiar, and then the going off into the wild, right? And 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 out into uh, adventure, and then returning to it again. Same thing with Narnia, right? Starting in uh, in England during the war, and then going through the wardrobe into Narnia and coming back, right? Um, that same that same shape here. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Let's uh, let's look at that hedge scene. He felt sure now that this must be the gate of the rise, and that these trees surrounded a house and garden. He tried the gate and found it locked. He stood for a moment undecided, discouraged by the silence and the growing darkness. His first inclination, tired as he felt, was to continue his journey to Stirk, but he had committed himself to a troublesome duty on behalf of the old woman. He knew that it would be possible, if one really wanted to, to force a way through the hedge. He did not want to. A nice fool he would look, blundering in upon some retired eccentric, the sort of a man who kept his gates locked in the country, with this silly story of a hysterical mother in tears because her idiot boy had been kept half an hour late at his work. Yet it was perfectly clear that he would have to get in, and since one cannot crawl through a hedge with a pack on, he slipped his pack off and flung it over the gate. The moment he had done so, it seemed to him that he had not till now fully made up his mind, now that he must break into the garden, if only in order to recover the pack. He became very angry with the woman, and with himself, but he got down on his hands and knees and began to worm his way into the hedge. It is interesting to me that Ransom's entrance into the story proper, right, um, he is drawn out of his mundane world of his uh, Don's walking tour, right, his solitary walking tour, and into the adventure of of this book unwillingly in more than one sense, right? He is not just, yes, he's going to be captured and drug, you know, kidnapped and drugged and taken against his will, uh, on the journey. But even before that, he is not acting entirely on his own will and out of his own. I mean, he is, he made the decision, right? And yet from the beginning, he doesn't really want anything to do with this. Um, yeah, Stephen says, uh, come in by the gates or not at all. Uh, yeah, that is an interesting parallel. I'm not 100% sure what to do with it. I mean, that, but 
th- that sense of, tra- of course, uh, sorry, uh, let me not make assumptions. Uh, Stephen is quoting the, um, uh, the, the, the verses on the gate at the end of uh, on the garden on the hilltop uh, in the magician's nephew, the one with the, the apple that Diggory has to get um, in the Chronicles of Narnia in, you know, book six of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, so um, I, the, the connection, Stephen, that I would make there is that sense of transgression, right? It was a really bad sign when Jadis forces her way in, right? She climbs over the wall and she takes the apple for herself. And you can just walk in through the gates, right? You don't, you don't, you don't have to climb over the wall. Um, you can take the apples, but just not for yourself, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like merely transgressing onto, onto forbidden ground, right? Um, there's an element of that, but it's not simply that, right? Uh, and so his transgression here is kind of uh, is 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 kind of interesting. Um, yeah, Robert, does he find his heart's desire and find despair? I, I, I don't. I, I'm not sure if he finds either one of those things here, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so Robert says, "Why didn't he crawl through rather than climb over?" I think he can't. I mean, so hedges are kind of a British thing. And as an American, I'm much less familiar with British-style hedges uh, than British people would have been. Um, uh, the hedge as a barrier is much more common, as I say, uh, over there in England. And it's, it's you know, densely... Um, they're like for privacy, but they are. They do keep animals out. Like, you know, uh, things like deer and stuff don't can't get through a hedge. Uh, so you can protect your garden with them and everything without making walls, you know, which let in no light at all. And, and, you know, so hedges kind of some light can get through and they can kind of breathe as well. Um, uh, so you're not like completely enclosed behind uh, cloistering walls as you would be if you had a walled garden. But again, it keeps out the, uh, uh, uh you know, uh, cattle and, and deer and things like that. Um, but you can't, um, you can't climb over a hedge like it's just the 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 trees and stuff aren't strong enough uh for that and um uh and the gates presumably are made of just vertical bars right which you can't squeeze through and there's nothing to climb up and over so he's not climbing a fence right there's a hedge that he can push through but the 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 barrier it's a barrier, but it is a permeable barrier, right? You, you can, like, you know, he, he, he knows. Um, he knew that it would be possible if one really wanted to force a way through the hedge. He did not want to, right? It is possible. This is, a, this is a boundary. This is a barrier. The door is closed, right? The gate is locked in his face. He, could, he can get in. If he, but he has to want to. He has to make the choice. Um, he's not wandering in. This is not like a, he's wandering down the path and then suddenly the gates snap shut behind him and suddenly there he is. No, he is only there. He's only involved because he very distinctly, um, uh, he very distinctly has to choose. He has to, he has to make a very uh, specific, even a very forceful action on his own in order to... Uh, in order to get in. Um, exactly, James. You can't stumble in by accident. You have to make a decision. Yeah, exactly. Uh, very, very much so. 
Um, and yes, Brian, it is really important to notice that um, you're not supposed to do this, right? I mean, there's there is, and this of course gets gets brings me back to the uh, the magician's nephew joke. This is a transgression. Like he is trespassing right now. Um, I mean, it's somebody else's land anyway, so he'd be trespassing if the gates were open or closed in a sense. But if the gates were open, that at least is like an implicit invitation on the part of the people who live there, right? But if they have gates and they're, if they have gates in a wall and the gates are closed and locked, they don't want you to come in, right? That's a sign that they don't want you to come in. So if you force your way in, physically force your way past the barrier, um, you've not just made a choice to go in, um, but you have, uh, uh, you have made a choice which you know to be transgressive, a choice which you know in a sense puts you in the wrong, right? Um, he is trespassing, uh, and, and he, he feels it, right? Blundering in upon some retired eccentric. Like, this isn't necessarily right, right? It's, it's, this is not a black and white kind of thing, right? So why does he do it? Um, he does it, um... Yeah. Oh, and Jocelyn, absolutely. Just yeah, thank you for uh, 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 reminding of that. Yes, this, of course, uh, just to clarify that, predates the magician's nephew by like two decades. Uh, this is one of this is I. If I'm remembering correctly, this is his first published piece of fiction. Lewis's. He's already published. Uh, you know, he, he, this is after the publication of his first really important scholarly work, The Allegory of Love. Um, so he's been published before, but I believe this is his first published piece of fiction. So this is very early on um, uh, in his uh, in his career. So why does he do this? Why does he do it? Ransom's a good guy, right? Law-abiding citizen. He's, he doesn't just break into places. Um, and it's interesting, because on the one hand... Um, on the one hand, he he has a personal motivation, right? There's a selfish reason for him to do this. He needs a place to stay for the night. I mean, he's he could be sleeping in a ditch tonight, for all he knows, because he has no idea uh, where he's going to stay tonight. Um, so he is looking and hoping. For, to find a place to stay. But it is clearly not that which brings him in, right? He did not want to go in. Um, uh, but it's, yeah, it's all about his, um, um, it's all about his promise to the woman, right? Oh, sorry, Julie says, what about Pilgrim's Regress? That was, uh, that was first. That, that, that did come first. Yes, that did come first. Pilgrim's Regress came first. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, just in case you weren't convinced that he was a big admirer and was thinking a lot about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, his uh, other book published right in this era, era was called Pilgrim's Regress, um, uh, deliberately paralleling um, Pilgrim's Progress. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, right. Thank you, uh, Robert for, uh, and Julie, for reminding me about that. I had forgotten that one. Um, I think it was it was a little bit before this, but it's not. It's I mean it it is a work of 
fiction, sort of, but it's uh, not exactly. I mean, Pilgrim's Regress isn't a no- This is a novel. That was not a novel, right? Um, it was sort of a work of allegorical, spiritual autobiography. It's a it's a peculiar kind of book. I like uh, Pil- Pilgrim's Regress. Um, uh, Lewis, unlike Tolkien, Lewis was quite good at allegory, actually. Um, Tolkien is not very good at allegory. When he tries to do it, and he does try to do it, uh, most of the time, Tolkien is not very good at it. Um, the one exception to that rule, I would say, is Leaf by Niggle. Um, uh, the workhouse in Leaf by Niggle is, I think, a brilliant allegory. Um, uh, so as... As allegories go, Tolkien did allegory uh, a couple times, not very often, because again, he doesn't really um, he doesn't really do it um, uh, very much. And when he does do it, it's often kind of awkward. Like uh, yeah, I would say, for a, an example of not very successful allegory by Tolkien, would be Smith of Wooten Major, um, uh, the whole uh, chief, uh, you know, uh, the whole cook uh, allegory uh, in. Uh, uh, Smith of Wooten Major, which doesn't really work super well. Anyway, like I said, just, it's just not the way Tolkien thinks. Um, but it is the way that Lewis thinks, and he's quite good at it. Uh, Pilgrim's Re- Regress has some really subtle and fascinating elements. Um, anyway, okay. So, getting back to Ransom here. It is his sense of responsibility that drives him on. He has a duty, right? He has promised the woman... Um, and he didn't choose that, right? That was kind of an encounter that was thrust upon him. She almost ran into him, right? Coming, coming, running out, hoping, of course, that he was her son returning home. Um, uh, he makes a promise that he will inquire here. Now, of course, it's interesting because his promise is in part motivated by his desire to find a place to stay for the night, right? He's kind of like, oh, well, so there's a, there's a, an eccentric old professor who lives up here. Well, you know, if it's, you know, a fellow Don, right? Somebody who's in my line of work, maybe you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go and inquire on behalf of the old woman here. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, one thing might lead to another and maybe he'll invite me to stay the night, right? That is, that was, um, uh, explicitly, uh, his line of thinking, right. As he was, uh, as he was, uh, first doing that, but it's also very clear that he is genuinely moved, um, by the distress of the woman, right. He, he, he feels that it is the right thing, uh, to do for him to sort of take up her cause and try to help her and find out what happened to her son. Um, and now, that promise to the old woman, which comes up several times in this section as he is advancing into this increasingly creepy house. And then of course, finding what looks like a violent crime in action, right? As he finds these two men manhandling the third man who is clearly the missing son in question, right? Um, his, um, faithfulness in following that duty seems to be rewarded, in that sense, if you can call that a reward, that is, uh, events seem to show that he was right to be concerned, uh, and it was good that he involved himself. He did, in fact, s- apparently, um, uh, either save the life of, or you know, he preserved the the son, right? Um, 
this woman's son is in fact safely sent back to her, it seems, and uh, uh, and certainly escapes the fate that was planned for him. Um, but the conflicting the situation that he's put in, right? Where on the one hand he is being faithful to the promise that he made to the old woman, the promise which was at least partially motivated by 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 charity, by the desire to help uh, that woman and to and 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 mercy to relieve her uh, uh, pity, to 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 relieve her anxiety, um, is now leading him to commit. <laughs> trespass and arguably burglary here in breaking in. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, uh, that I think is, turns out to be important because as I say, Ransom's story in this book is about, you know, he does have a destination, right? He is going somewhere. Um, uh, what's, um, what's, Pil- what's, uh, Christian's destination in Pilgrim's Progress, right? City of Destruction is where he's coming from. What's his, uh, what's his destination? Where's he headed? Bunyan quizzes tonight. Talk about somebody who is good at allegory, man. Bunyan is awesome. Yes, Edith. Very good. The Celestial City. That's it. The Celestial City uh, is his is his uh, is his final destination. Um, and of course, uh, not exactly a city, but uh, uh, the final destination of uh, of Ransom is, of course, literally in the heavens. Um, uh, his destiny his it's again, not precisely a city, but something sort of like a city, uh, which is definitely, and in an, an even more literal sense, celestial, um, um, is, uh, um, is where uh, he's going to end up. Again. So he, he has, there is an itinerary, right? There is a path that he's going to be going, but he's not going to be going, he doesn't know that he's going there. And he's not going to be going. He's not going to be going there precisely by his own will all the way. And yet again, um, he uh, uh, he doesn't. It's not. It's also not not of his own will, right? His own will is very definitely involved. He has to push his way through the hedge in order to do it. And what drives him on? What leads him to the place? Where he is swept away onto the journey and ends up in the heavens and at the celestials and at the celestial city, sort of the definitely celestial sort of city uh, by the end um, is is his 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 duty. Right. He is trying to do the right thing and trying to do the right thing is what gets him into this fix. Yes. Hey, no shame for uh, uh, Rachel and uh, uh, Edith, both of you, who knew the answer to the Celestial City question from reading Little Women <laughs> as a child. <laughs> that's that's all good. <laughs> that's perfectly legit. Um, okay. Well, let's move forward a bit. Thinking about Weston and Divine. So we have two 
antagonists here, right? We have two different villains, Weston and Divine, and the two of them are very complementary villains, and we get a clear glimpse of that from the beginning, right? Um, Divine is just managing introductions here. Um, Divine, of course, it turns out, knows Ransom because they went to school. They were at the same at the same English public school, presumably, right? It's, it talk about the old school tie and all that kind of thing. Um, so Divine and Ransom were at school together, and Weston is the professor, right, referred to by, uh, uh, by the old woman um, uh, that, he's, uh, that he met. Um, so Divine was just doing the introductions, and he is introducing the two of them as very eminent in their own fields, Right. Weston is the great physicist, the Weston, you know, right, um, who uh, 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 who eats Einstein on toast and drinks a pint of Schrodinger's blood every morning at, at, at breakfast. Right. And uh, then is doing a symmetrical introduction uh, of Ransom to Weston, uh, saying that he is the Ransom, you know, the philologist uh, uh, and uh, is, is in the middle of saying, whom he eats on toast and whose blood he drinks a pint of every morning at breakfast when Weston interrupts him, right? Saying, I know nothing about it, said Weston, who was still holding the unfortunate Harry by the collar. And if you expect me to say that I am pleased to see this person who has just broken into my garden, you will be disappointed. I don't care tuppence what school he was at, nor on what unscientific foolery he is at present wasting money that ought to go to research. I want to know what he's doing here, and after that I want to see the last of him. Don't be an ass, Weston, said Divine in a more serious voice. His dropping in is delightfully apropos. You mustn't mind Weston's little way, Ransom. Conceals a generous heart beneath a grim exterior, you know. You'll come in and have a drink and something to eat, of course. That's very kind of you, said Ransom. But about the boy? Divine drew Ransom aside. Barmy, he said in a low voice. Works like a beaver as a rule, but gets these fits. We are only trying to get him into the wash house and keep him quiet for an hour or so till he's normal again. Can't let him go home in his present state. All done by kindness. You can take him home yourself presently, if you like, and come back and sleep here. What do we learn about Weston and Divine here? We will learn more about them later, right? But what do we see from the very beginning about Weston and Divine about the 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 contrast between the two of them. Tom, I agree with you. Weston definitely did not read the right books, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, somehow Weston has managed to read even more of the wrong books than Eustace Scrub did, right? Clearly, um, clearly. Uh, <laughs> Colette, it does feel a little bit like good cop, bad cop. Absolutely. Uh, that that's definitely that's definitely the 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 feeling of it, um, yeah. So we've got um, the thinker and the talker, Jennifer. Yep, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, Weston takes things very seriously, Devora. Absolutely. Um, Help me do something here. Explain to me what Weston is thinking right now. What's Weston thinking? What evidence, based on the evidence of what we see in this passage, what's Weston thinking? He doesn't care who Ransom is, right? All he knows is that 
Ransom is in the humanities, right? Which is obviously a waste of money that should be spent on scientific research, right? So, um, you know, that's that's all he needs to know in order to dismiss Ransom. Don't try to tell me that he's a, a prominent philologist. That could, that phrase would clearly be, or like an important philologist, which would clearly be an oxymoron uh, to, to Weston, right? Um, yes, Brian, I agree. Weston's hostility is open. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and we do see, Veronica, I think that that's very important. We do see Weston cares only about scientific advancement, right? From the beginning here, we can see anything that is not um, uh, furthering the advance of science is unscientific foolery, right? That's, that's uh, he, and he's extremely categorical there. Um, notice he begins by declaring his own ignorance, right? I don't know anything about philology and about who, like, so the, these famous, these other famous philologists that Weston was just going to name, right? The parallels, the, the opposite numbers to Einstein and Schrodinger, right? Um, Weston immediately dismisses the whole thing, right? I know nothing about it. He's, he, he has studied not one whit of philology, right? Because he knows enough to know that it's all unscientific foolery. Um, so we do know that he he's not at all interested in Ransom as a person, or, or rather he has already dismissed him as of any significance because of um, he how he is at present wasting money on unscientific foolery. Um, uh, yeah, no, Devorah, Weston would not approve of Signum very much. Uh, I cannot help but agree with you there at that point. Um, so, Stephen, yes, I think so. Stephen is saying Weston seems to be thinking there is an intruder on my property. If he doesn't have some purpose, he should leave. Yes. What what might his purpose be? He does care about that. Right. Um, he says, I want to know what he's doing here. And after that, I want to see the last of him. Right. Ransom is to him nothing but an introduction. He has his plan. Right. He knows what he's doing. He has things under control. He literally he has Harry under control. Right. He's holding Harry by the collar. Right. What's he holding? His point of view. Right. Put yourself into Weston's point of view. What is Weston holding in his hand? Yes, exactly, John. He is holding an experimental subject in his hand, right? He has, um, he has a scientific experiment planned, right? Um, and as he is going to explain, we're not going to look at this passage, but as he explains to, as Ransom overhears him saying to Divine later on, um, this boy is perfect for this. Right. Because he's he's not even really a human being. Right. He's more like a preparation, he says. It's almost like a almost like a, a dummy made up for the experiment. Right. Um, uh, he is uh, he's like a human Petri dish to Weston. Right. Um, so. So, yeah, so he's in the middle of his experiment. Right. And here comes here comes Ransom, right? Ransom is broken into... So wh why might he do this? Why do you think Weston wants to know what he's doing? 
I want to know what he's doing here. Because, of course, there's... Um, uh, Uh, there's a um, there's a one uh, there's a potential issue here, right? Um, and we see this not in this exact um, in this in this moment here, right? Um, but yeah, exactly, Devore. He might be trying to steal his discoveries or something, right? I mean, somebody could break in in order to try. I mean, this is top. There's a reason he's locked the gates. Right, he's locked the gates because he does not want anyone else to know. Remember what uh, he says to Ransom in the spaceship when Ransom says, "You expect me to believe that you've already been to another planet and back? That's really big news." He's like, "That doesn't happen every day, right?" He's basically saying, "How is that not on the news? How did I not know this? That we travel to, an, you know, humans have traveled to another planet and back." Do you remember what uh, what Weston says in response to that? He says. Because we're not perfect idiots. That's why. Right? We have kept this a secret because we don't want anybody else to know about it. Right? This is so we are uh we are protecting our my discoveries, right? My information. So who is this guy like, there can't be any good reason for somebody to uh break into this locked secret place, which is the center of his world-changing uh, world changing experiments. It is possible a couple of you are um, um, are suggesting that he might think that Ransom could be a cop, right? That this could, you know, and, and that he could be potentially getting in trouble. I don't think that he's worried about that. Um, and the primary reason I don't think he's worried about that is the way that he acts towards Ransom. Notice he doesn't ever say anything like He's seen too much, right? Like we're gonna have to kill him and bury him in the backyard now. Like he doesn't—he doesn't go there at all. Um, he wants to know what he's doing here, and after that, I want to see the last of him. I want to—I want to—I want to get rid of him, right? He's a nuisance. He's a distraction. He's an interloper. And once I am sure that he's up to no good, if he were coming in to try to steal his secrets, he might kill him. Um, I can easily imagine Weston deciding to do that. Um, but it's once he has confirmed that this guy is not like a rival physicist or something like that, then he just wants to turf him out the door. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I don't think he does not seem to be worried that, um, you know, that the cops are onto him here. Um, yeah, exactly. As Kit says, uh, science doesn't exist until you publish. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, except, you know, Weston... That's interesting. Weston doesn't seem to necessarily think like that, right? Uh, Divine certainly doesn't. We'll get back to him in a second. But um, anyway, I, 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 Rachel, that's, uh, that's a really, really great point. Harry is smarter in a sense than they give him credit for. And this is one of the things that Lewis does, I think, really well through this scene, right? We hear Weston give voice explicitly to the argument or the claim or the perspective that Harry, who is, according to his mother, uh, kind of simple, and uh, is when in, when the narrator is trying to capture capture the uh, irritable feelings of uh, of 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 Ransom uh, when he is being 
niggled by his uncomfortable duty of following through on the promise he made to Harry's mother, calls him an idiot boy in his own head, right? Um, Weston does not... He, he explicitly describes Harry as subhuman, right? Um, he should not be allowed to breed and he uh, should be subject to experiment. He should be locked away and made available for experiment for experimental purposes. Uh, and he's, he's definitively subhuman. Um, Lewis doesn't refute that explicitly, right? Weston explicitly makes that claim. The counterclaim is only implicitly made by ransom, Right by Ransom's following through on his promise, by Ransom sticking up for Harry, right? Uh, Ransom certainly affords to Harry the um, uh, the dignity of being a human being, right? Um, by standing up for him, by seeking him out, by trying to help him. Um, but I agree with you, Rachel, that we get um, we get another layer behind that. Right. Where we can see they may say that he's uh, he's like an animal. Right. Except he's smart enough to know uh, more than divine certainly wants to let on. Right. Um, Harry knows. I don't know that he knows full. I mean, I doubt he knows it's a spaceship. Right. I doubt he knows they're trying to drag him off to Mars. But he does know perfectly well that they are trying to take him somewhere against his will that that creepy spherical thing that he doesn't want to get dragged into right um is uh is not a place that he wants to go and that the, you know so he he clearly does know more than uh than they sort of uh, let um uh let on there um yes Devorah, i agree divine is more worried about cops uh, than Weston is. Yeah, he's the one who mentioned Scotland Yard, right? That uh, Scott uh, uh, Harry is the kind of boy in which Scotland Yard could might take an interest. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Karita says, "I can't tell if Lewis wants us to react with disgust." Yes. Yes. I think that it is very clear. Uh, again, the contrast between Ransom's perspective and Weston's perspective is clear, although Weston is the one articulating it and Ransom is, is only implicitly acting on, uh, on it. Um, but yes, I mean, like the, the issue of, um, you know, the human status, uh, of Harry is not, taken up as a central discussing point here. Um, but it is very clear that all of the elements of Weston's perspective, which lead him to draw that conclusion about Harry, um, are very, are themselves very clearly taken up, uh, uh, in the story. And I, I think in the, uh, he leaves us, I think in the end with no, um, no uncertainty about the judgment that, you know, the story is inviting us to have, uh, about this. Um, exactly. David Erbach says ransom treats him like a boy who is also a son who needs to be reunited with his mother. Yes, absolutely. Um, yep. Yep. Um, 
Good. Yeah, Brian and Stephen are both uh, recalling, uh, and Jocelyn, all at once, recalling uh, the eugenics thinking uh, of uh, the early 20th century. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, and uh, again, if 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 this is making you think uh, think proto-Nazi thoughts, that's not an accident, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that was a thing. Very much a thing. Remember, this is in the this is published in the in the late 30s. Um, there were. There were definitely people who were making these arguments very plainly and very clearly, um, these eugenics-based uh, arguments. Um, uh, Weston's... I get the impression that um, uh, modern people reading this book in particular, uh, 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 several of Lewis's things from early in his life, um, might feel like Weston is a, a strange kind of caricature of this perspective. Um, I don't think that's nearly, I mean, I'm not, it may, it may well be that the character of Weston, uh, could be accused of being a caricature. Um, I'm not saying that it's impossible to make that accusation good, but I am saying, um, would have felt much less if it feels like Weston, if, if to the modern reader, Weston's character feels unrealistic, I think it would have felt much less unrealistic in 1938. Um, there's very little that Weston says that was not being said openly by many people uh, in the twenties and thirties and forties, um, such as the Nazis, for instance, right? That doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, so, um, so yeah, Brian, I think that's a really good way of saying it. Uh, he is extreme, but not comical, right? I mean, he's not just like a he's not just like a comical caricature. He's an extreme example, but an extreme example of something that is, John, as you say, very prevalent thinking um, uh, at the time. I mean, one of the things that I'm always very interested in um, when I'm reading, uh, I've been reading a bunch of Lewis lately. I just I do this every once in a while. Uh, I period every year. I, I read most of Tolkien's works every year, but I, uh, I Lewis's uh, writings I read not quite every year, um, a little bit more sporadically. But I'll occasionally, you know, the fit will take me when I'm like, I haven't read C.S. Lewis uh, recently enough, and I'll go back and I'll do a chronological read through of all Lewis's books. Um, and I actually just finished that uh, 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 recently, so I've been kind of reimmersed in Lewis lately. And again, reading reading that stuff, you, you, uh, th this early stuff, the stuff that he wrote, both the fiction and the nonfiction, uh, his books and essays from uh, from the '30s and '40s, and um, it's it becomes clear uh, these things, these ideas, which are very even viscerally repugnant to the modern mind. Um, you know, it seems that, you know, Western society kind of came to a decision point, uh, you know, in the thirties and forties, and it could have gone either way. Um, the whole like eugenics mindset might have won, right? It is, it is possible that that perspective might have won. And I don't just mean like the Nazis might have won the war, though certainly that might have been a mechanism by, uh, uh, for that winning. But I don't just mean that. Um, I mean, ideologically, they might have won. Um, you know, our Western culture 
took a different turn there. And now those ideas seem revolting, uh, I think, to the majority of modern readers. But in 1938, it was not clear that that would be true. Um, I think that Lewis would have been quite relieved, actually, if you had told him in 1938 that in 2020, when we read this book and, and talked about it, people would listen to Weston and just find it repulsive that anyone would talk or think like that. Um, because in 1938, there was a very real possibility that that was going to be the, the accepted norm, the accepted cultural norm moving forward. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, I, I know that lots of people believed in eugenics besides just the Nazis. I, I bring them up only as a, uh, one sort of example of a very prominent place where that mindset was uh, was kind of taking root uh, in society around then. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, agreed. Okay. Um, Yes, absolutely. Lewis could, he actively was in some ways, in some of his books, uh, envisioning a future in which disagreeing with Weston would have been odd or even deviant or even dangerous. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we can see a lot about Weston's perspective here. Notice also, uh, well, no, I'll come back to that in a second. How about divine? What do we learn about divine? Yeah. Oh, good. Right. Yeah. Zach said he was saying that about uh, um, that there was more than just the Nazis in support for the idea that it was possible for the idea to win out even if the Nazi even with the Nazis losing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, anyway. OK, so how, how about how about divine? Divine is smarmy. Absolutely. Yes, uh, definitely. He lies quickly and easily, Jennifer. Definitely. Um, he's he's smooth. He's false. Um, he uh, he's quick and easy to lie. He has a slick way with people. Um, definitely devious. Definitely devious. Um, yes, Takako, we can see from the beginning. He is not idealistic. Weston is idealistic, right? You might think his ideals are repulsive, but he's idealistic, right? He is driven by adherence to his ideals. Divine does not seem to be, right? The way that he comes around to immediately sort of make up to Ransom and, and uh, um, the way that he's trying to, to smooth things here, um, definitely more flexible uh, and able to adjust his plans, Eric. And that's a really important element of the story at this moment, right? Don't be an ass, Weston. His dropping in is delightfully apropos. You mustn't mind Weston's little way, Ransom. Conceals a generous heart beneath a grim exterior, you know, right? Um, which is obviously complete bosh, and I don't think he's fooling anybody with it. Um, but of course, notice right from there, you'll come in and have a drink and something to eat, of course, right? And then right afterwards, you can take him home yourself presently, if you like, and come back and sleep here, right? Um, uh, it's all done by kindness. Right? He knows the things to say, immediately knows the things to say, on the spur of the moment, right? Um, what Ransom probably wants and needs, he knows nothing, right? Um, 
I, I mean, it's, he, he just immediately is able to figure out the best things to say. He's, he has, in fact, said to Ransom exactly what Ransom's secret hope was, that he would find somewhere that would feed him and let him stay there that night, right? And almost intuitively, uh, Divine plays all the right cards, right? Um, oh, don't, uh, don't, don't mind old grumpy pants here, right? Uh, no, no, come eat and stay. And oh, no, yeah, obviously, like I totally share your perspective about this boy, right? It's not like I was just personally helping Weston manhandle him, right? No, no, no. I, I'm, I immediately am going to think of a reason to explain that uh, and to show that everything is that everything is fine, right? Um, yeah. So Colette, yes, I do believe when, if we play the, what is divine thinking, right? Weston, Weston's thinking is quite inflexible. He has his plan, right? He has his plan, which is he's got his, uh, he's got his preparation, right? He has his, 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 his subject, which he has chosen and, and, uh, and, and he's perfect, right? The boy is perfect because he doesn't even count as human, right? Um, Divine has other plans, and he makes other plans instantly. He changes his plans instantly. Weston is kind of dense here, right? Um, Divine is very much more quick-witted. Um, he does immediately see that they could take Ransom instead. Um, why? This is before their conversation, where Ransom, in with what uh, might seem in retrospect like uh, a uh, lamentable lack of caution, uh, tells Divine that he's walking off on his own. He's going to be gone for months. Nobody knows where he is or where he will be, and nobody will miss him, at least until the term begins a couple months from now. Right. So after ransom tells him that obviously he's like the per you know the scotland yard is going to come looking for this guy for a long time and even when they do they're going to have a heck of a time tracing where he was last seen right so um that's uh uh but th but this is before that even before that he seems to have you know when he says his dropping in is delightfully apropos he is clearly trying to wink wink nudge nudge weston here right don't be an ass Weston. Even saying that, even saying don't be an ass, don't act like a donkey, right? Don't dig in your, you know, don't like stiffen your legs and, and, uh, and, and, and resist, you know, this, the, the direction I'm trying to please. run with it, Weston, right? Work with me here. Um, his dropping in is delightfully apropos. Immediately he has this idea. So what's his idea? He doesn't even know how apropos. It's even more apropos than he knows, right? But why does he think this? Can you can you, can we can we make a guess at his train of thought? Remember what he's responding to here. If you expect me to say that I am pleased to see this person who has just broken into my garden, you will be disappointed. Um. Yeah, uh, Tom says they're very like draw light in lascelles. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, David, exactly. David Atlee says he's so smart and so slick that he thought up a lie and he thought it up quick. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Um, 
Yeah, Jocelyn, I agree. Ransom is a stranger, right? He knows Ransom is a stranger because he knows that Ransom is at Cambridge, which is not right around the corner, right? Um, whereas, he, so he, he, as he's going to explain to Weston later on, they're taking a risk in trying to take Harry with them. Weston doesn't care, but Divine does. Divine is thinking about the cops, and he is thinking that this boy is going to be missed. We know he's already missed. They don't even have him in the spaceship yet, and his mom is already a basket case down the road, right? So... The cops are going to find out about the, disappe- the disappearance of Harry, like possibly before they've launched, right? So Divine is completely sensible to be concerned about that. At the very least, um, Ransom's from out of town, right? And that makes him a better candidate as far as from the perspective of less alarming to the police, right? Less likely to come to the attention of the police right away, right? But in addition, um, uh, but in addition, he's put himself in the wrong, right? Uh, Weston sees that this person has just broken into my garden. And he's like, if you expect me to say I'm pleased to see this person who's just broken into my garden, you will be disappointed. Divine is essentially saying, yeah, moron, I do expect you to say that you're pleased to see this person who's just broken into your garden. Like brilliant perfect somebody broke in right he, he was a, so if there is if someday there were to be any kind of inquiry into like the disappearance well he brought it on himself right he's put himself in the wrong i mean it's it's much easier to make up a story that starts with that like here we were in our in in you know on our own property minding our business when this stranger burst in upon us and accosted us you know i mean seriously like divine can immediately tell even knowing nothing else oh man this is way better right this is absolutely better but you notice all of these practical exactly and then he just fell into the spaceship right actually he broke into the spaceship too right he's a stowaway on our space journey and there we were minding our own business um yeah and jennifer i agree they do have to get rid of ransom somehow um, Weston just wants to see the last of him. He's going to let him go. Weston doesn't care, right? Weston is not thinking about the practical consequences of any of these things. Um, Divine is definitely, I think, thinking, uh, okay, he's probably already seen too much. I mean, if Ransom were to go to the police and say, yeah, I can't, these like, you know, okay, I broke through the hedge and that was, you know, my bad, but, uh, like these guys were manhandling this, you know, go ask the mom, ask the, you know, ask Harry himself down the road. Like this is, uh, this looked bad. Divine knows it looks bad. Right. So yeah, this also gets rid of, uh, gets rid of ransom. So, um, part of that don't be an ass is I think also saying like, look, not only dude, be a little flexible here, work with me, but also like you've got to think through the practical implications of this. So from the beginning we see, the idealistic scientist, right? Horrible, uh, uh, kind of appalling ideals, but following his ideals and concerned with very little else, right? And then you've got Divine, who is quick thinking, slick, charismatic, smooth, and very practical, right? Uh, and I think that it's, it, I think it's really fascinating 
um, the way that we get these two different perspectives presented to us. And thus we get in Weston and divine two extremely complementary villains. Right. Um, and both of them are horrible in different ways. And I, I forget which one of you was saying it. One of you was saying a while back, like, you know, I go back and forth trying to decide which one of the two of them is the most horrible. Um, yeah, I, that's actually kind of one of the games to play uh, in this book. Um, but of course, the point is not to decide, like, you know, which one is marginally less bad than the other. They're two very different views of what, you know, like moral corruption looks like. Right. They're like two uh, very uh, negative examples. Right. Uh, and uh and then, of course, we have poor Ransom caught up uh, in the two of them. Karita, that was you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, okay. So, now, you guys know me way too well, I'm sure, uh, to know that I wasn't going to, to, to know that I wasn't going to pass this passage by. Uh, when Ransom is drugged, he has this dream. Uh, and it's a dream that is not going to be alluded to I think there is no reference to this dream anywhere else in the whole rest of the book. So this is just this sort of isolated moment of vision on Ransom's part. But it is a moment of vision at this very important transitional moment, right? As he is uh, being taken into the spaceship and getting ready to... uh, uh, to, They're not in the spaceship yet, but um, he's... This is the moment when he's... um, uh, if the crossing of the hedge is like the entrance into fairy, right? There's another sense, right? In which this is, uh, uh, this is the moment where things, where he leaves Kansas, right? Okay. Ransom could never be sure whether what followed had any bearing on the events recorded in this book or whether it was merely an irresponsible dream. It seemed to him that he and Weston and Divine were all standing in a little garden surrounded by a wall. The garden was bright and sunlit, but over the top of the wall you could see nothing but darkness. They were trying to climb over the wall, and Weston asked them to give him a hoist up. Ransom kept on telling him not to go over the wall because it was so dark on the other side, but Weston insisted, and all three of them set about doing so. Ransom was the last. He got astride on the top of the wall, sitting on his coat because of the broken bottles. The other two had already dropped down on the outside into the darkness, but before he followed them, a door in the wall, which none of them had noticed, was opened from without, and the queerest people he had ever seen came into the garden, bringing Weston and Divine back with them. They left them in the garden and retired into the darkness themselves, locking the door behind them. Ransom found it impossible to get down from the wall. He remained sitting there, not frightened, but rather uncomfortable because of his right leg, which was on the outside. Be- sorry, because his right leg, which was on the outside, felt so dark, and his left leg felt so light. My leg will drop off if it gets much darker, he said. Then he looked down into the darkness and asked, Who are you? And the queer people must still have been there, for they all replied, Who? 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 Just like owls. Okay. What do you make of the dream? What do you make of the dream? Okay, so let's... This is one, of course, which is... um, If we follow the tantalizing hint at the beginning of the paragraph, Ransom could never be sure whether what followed had any bearing on the events recorded in this book. Well, 
if you come back and reread this dream at the end, right after you finish the book, it's kind of hard to avoid the idea that, yes, there is definitely uh, some bearing. It has some bearing on the events of the book. Um, so I, But I don't want to look at this dream from a spoilery perspective, right? I don't just want to think about the way this dream looks from the perspective of the end of the book. I want to think about how it looks now. How it looks now, we begin with a situation which is directly parallel to the scene as we have seen it, right? Um, that is, they're in a walled garden. Now, it was a garden with a hedge. This is an actual stone wall, right? A stone wall with broken bottles along the top. That was quite common, by the way. Um, <clears throat> okay, I was about to say, do you remember when? But this is totally unfair because it's a massively obscure moment. Um, there's a reference to uh, topping, bottles, uh, topping walls with broken bottles in Dracula, uh, which is like, just only... Uh, I mean, Dracula was only published 31 years before... Uh, this book was published. Um, no, wait. 39 years. Sorry. 39 years, not 31 years. 39 years before this book was published. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 39 years. Um, so it's 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 only, the, you know, Dracula is only about one generation before. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's, if you're curious, it's the zookeeper talking about the escaped wolf berserker who comes back with his face all cut up. Uh, with glass, and he, uh, the zookeeper, attributes that to people topping their walls with broken bottles uh, in order to keep people from climbing over their walls, um, uh, and that uh, you know the wolf must have, must have cut his face on that. Um, anyway, yeah, it's basically it's like the poor man's barbed wire, right? I mean, you you, you can just uh, by putting broken glass on the top, like not not loose broken glass, you you, you can like glue it down or stick it into the um, into like concrete on the top of the uh, on the top of the wall, and so it makes it dangerous to climb over. Um, and but notice it doesn't stop them, right? So, okay. So on the one hand, we have a parallel with the scene in the garden that we've had. We have this walled garden yard space, right? But instead of the permeable the permeable hedge, it is an impermeable wall, right? And they have to climb over the wall instead of pushing through the hedge like Ransom did. And it's clear that you're not supposed to. It is transgressive to climb over the wall in an even... I mean, you can tell... The broken bottles show you, right? You don't put broken bottles on the top of your wall if you... Um, uh, uh, if you um, don't want to keep people out. Like, that's the whole point of doing it, right? Um, so... Um, Okay. But the transgression, of course, the other major difference, apart from the hedge-to-wall difference, <clears throat> that the obstacle is more difficult to get over, is that they're trying to get out instead of getting in, right? So whereas Ransom broke in, <clears throat> the three of them are transgressively trying to leave the garden and the garden. The only thing we're told about the garden, apart from the fact that it's surrounded by a wall, um, is that it is bright and sunlit. So they are in the light. Um, they're in the light in the garden and outside the garden is only darkness. The light and the darkness 
is that supposed to mean, you know, does that uh, perhaps map onto the known and the unknown? Possibly, right? They are in the, the three of them are in the world of the familiar and they are leaving the world of the familiar and they're doing so transgressively, right? And going off into the unknown, into the darkness. And notice that it's Weston and Divine who go first. It's Weston who goes first of all, right? What do we learn about Weston's going, though? He, um, uh, he, he needs a hoist up, right? Weston thinks of himself as, like, the independent man of genius, right? But in the dream, Divine and Ransom have to hoist him up in order to get him over the wall, which is an interesting point. I can't help but think. But Weston goes over first and Divine goes over first and they, um, Ransom is the last. Um, Ransom is not being dragged over, right? He's not being hauled over the wall. He's not tied up and thrown over the wall or something like that. He's going with them, right? So the three of them are leaving the brightly lit little space and going off into the darkness. So as I say, Known to unknown seems to be one way to uh, um, to read that. The other, of course, light and darkness could be good and evil, right? You know, that they are, uh, and again, this certainly fits in with the transgression thing, right? There is this wall that we are clearly not supposed to cross, right? And to cross it, you enter into the darkness and, you know, who knows what's going to happen to you after that. Um, and the fact that Weston and Divine, whom we already have all kinds of reasons to think ill of, right, are the two who are the driving forces to crossing the wall and the first two over, and Ransom never does cross the wall, right? It's tempting to see it mapping onto, you know, uh, a moral light and darkness there uh, as well. Ransom does tell Weston not to go. Absolutely. Um, in the end, I think the known and the unknown is is probably a better uh, um, reading of it. But because of the other people, right? Um, there is a door in the wall, but the door only opens from the other side. From this side of the wall, they don't even see the door, right? But there is a door in the wall um, that opens from the outside and the queerest people, some really strange customers, come in and they bring Weston and Divine back. So Weston and Divine are returned to the small, enclosed, but brightly lit place, right? Back to the familiar place. Ransom is left on top of the wall, straddling the wall with one leg in the light and one leg in the darkness. Um... And yes, that I love that description of how the one leg felt so dark uh, and his uh, his right leg felt so dark and his left leg felt so light. My leg will drop off if it gets much darker. Um, I, I, I love that, uh, both because I, I think that it's. Um, uh, uh, it's a wonderful capturing of the sort of dream experience it, that that line makes this really feel like a dream, not just a, a sort of a foreshadowing or something like that, right? Um, that's, that's 
to me like very authentic to sort of the dreaming experience. Um, exactly, Stephen, the absurd dream logic. It, it, it feels very authentic in that way. Um, but he's left with half of his body in the light and half of his body in the darkness. He doesn't cross the wall, but he does climb up the wall. And he himself is there, part of his body on either side of the wall, um, forming a kind of bridge. He is not escorted back by the people on the other side, um, but he does interact with them, right? He looks down into the darkness and asks, who are you? He wants to learn about the people who live out in the darkness. But the only response he gets in return is the hooting of owls, right? Or the sound which sounds just like owls. Um, he can't understand them, right? Um, yeah. Devorah, it is tempting to think of the light, dark feeling as heat and cold, but no, it's not right. It, if you're... You know, it kind of distantly foreshadows Paralandra, right? Where he is going to be piebald, sunburned on the one side and not on the other. Um, but it works the other way around, right? Um, when he arrives in Paralandra as piebald, um, it's going to be... that That's a reference back to this dream, not, not the other way around, of course. Um, okay, well, let's keep going. I want to make sure we at least begin the outer space stuff. Then where are we? Standing out from Earth about 85,000 miles. You mean we're in space? Ransom uttered the word with difficulty, as a frightened child speaks of ghosts or a frightened man of cancer. I love... This is one of the things I am fascinated by in reading not only this book, but other science fiction works of the first half of the 20th century, um, like everything pre-1960, essentially, um, because I am really fascinated to try to understand what outer space meant. You know, I, I'm a child of the 80s myself, and... Space obviously meant something very means something very different post moonwalk, right? I mean, after the moon landing in the '60s, the entire attitude, the whole entire cultural mythos of um, uh, of space and what 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 was associated with space has changed, and I feel like this thing that Ransom is experiencing here is something which I can easily believe to have been much more common, but I, th I feel like I lost. Like I, um, I had already been told that space was the final frontier by the time I was growing up. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, this is very different. This is a very different attitude. Um, the idea of being in space is terrifying, but terrifying in a particular way. Those of you who know Lewis's writings will know that one of the things that he is evoking here is the sense of, of the numinous. Um, uh, I won't get into that too much, but because uh, it would require 
a little, uh, quite a bit of explanation, but um, <clears throat> that is to say, <clears throat> not merely practical fear. His reaction is not, we're in space, like, that means our probability of death is quite high, right? That's not why. He's not afraid in that kind of a very practical way. Um, he is uh, afraid, in, like a child is afraid of ghosts, not because the child has a practical fear that ghosts are going to eat her or something. Um, a more awe-filled fear, John. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh yeah, Brian, exactly. Brian says, people in this era had good reason to think that space travel was or would be possible, but they had no way of knowing anything about what the experience of space would be like. Exactly. And Brian, I, I love, um, I think that there are a lot of things, of course, about the space travel stuff that are really easy to speak slightingly of. Now, you know, sometimes people will say, like, oh boy, this stuff is so dated, right? I, I think that's a really shallow reading, honestly. I mean, shallow is the only word I can think of for that. Um, because, like, yeah, dated in the sense that it, it gives us a glimpse into the perspective of people from a different date than us, yes. But what an experience to be imaginatively transported into a framework which is otherwise totally inaccessible to me. Right. Because I was raised in a certain context. Right. I was raised with certain associations about space, um, which are clearly inappropriate. I, I cannot just project backwards my post moonwalk, post Star Trek, uh, post Star Wars. Right. Um, uh, views of space. Uh but, you know, if, if I just come with my 1980s point of view, right, my 1980s kids point of view uh, to uh, to this, but then I, you know, I I'm, I'm missing something. I'm losing something right here. I'm getting a glimpse into a completely different uh, ethos. And I think that that's really um, that that's really interesting. Um, so. Um, yeah, good. Colette says the first photo of the whole Earth from space didn't come until 1972. Um, yeah, I mean, it's we're 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 this is 1938. Right. We um, anything about what space will be like, what space travel will be like is a complete guess. Um, and Lewis is no scientist. Right. He's making no scientific claims. Um, the hand waving about the mechanism for how the spaceship travels uh, is this is of course one of the things criticized in the Notion Club papers, as uh, some of you will remember. But um, uh, but of course, this is not Lewis's interest, right? There are some people, for uh, some science fiction writers, I mean, for instance, Larry Niven, right, um, who is very who are very interested in like this science part of science fiction, right? Who are really interested in thinking through, I mean, I think of uh, Larry Niven's ring world as a really uh, classic example of this, that this sort of subgenre of science fiction, which is very interested in thinking through the practicalities of how space travel might be possible and what certain, you know, uh, phenomena in space might look like and everything. So that's not what Lewis is doing. That's not at all what he's interested in. Um, uh, what he's interested in is um, 
the imaginative and mythic journey. Now, Nancy, you ask a really, really important question. Um, Nancy says, I think it'd be easier for me to get this story if it were just a fantasy. Like if, if they were just going into fairyland uh, rather than traveling in space. So why space? Nancy asks. And I think that that's a really um, that's a really important question. Uh, and the answer is it, it, there, there is, of course, I, um, myself, I have never been a big, um, codifier, right? I've, I've never been a big, uh, somebody who feels like sometimes people will spend so much time debating about like delineating different like subgenres within things. And like, does this book fit in that genre or in this genre and why or why not? Um, I often feel like such questions are, it feels to me sometimes like kind of a waste of time. Um, like it's not really important. Like categorizing things isn't necessarily so important as trying to understand them. Um, I, I, that's just my own bias. I'm, I'm not uh, wanting to be uh, totally anti-categorical. Um, in especially when it comes to literary genres, I've always um, struggled with impatience uh, when uh, I feel like uh, people always just want to categorize things. But but again, so the important thing is, so is this a kind of fantasy? Yeah, this is a work of fantasy. No question. Um, it's not scientific fiction, uh, to use the fun contemporary term. 1930s term. Um, it's not scientific fiction in one sense, right? That is, it's not scientific. Exactly. He's not really exploring science. What he is doing is fantasy. Um, just as the fantasy, you know, uh, 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 we have this subcreated world, right? We have this imagined world, um, which is like our world, but different from our world. And what if, um, what would it be like to be in such a world and how would stories unfold within that world? He's doing a very similar thing here, right? So is this, this is fantasy, right? It's, it is a very similar thing, but it's a very specific fantasy. The thing that he is wanting to do, and Nancy, this is where I'm coming back to trying to answer your question. Why space? Why space? Because that is what he is wanting to imagine. So, <laughs> sounds like a brilliant answer, doesn't it? L let me let me explain. Um, you could approach a book like um, Treasure Island and say, why pirates? Right? Why not something else? Why pirates? Um, and the answer is, well, it, it could have been something else. It didn't have to be pirates, in a sense. Right? Um, you could have told the basic story of Treasure Island um, had it been highwaymen, for instance, right? Or, um, you know, uh, uh, like barbarian tribes, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like Conan here or something, you know, I, I, like this. Yeah, there, there are other ways that in which you could tell a similar kind of story in which the events would be parallel and um, the, the sort of shape of the story would be the same. But it would be a very different story, 
right? What is being imagined? Um, uh, that the piracy is essential to the story of Treasure Island, right? Um, that is, in a sense, the fundamental premise, right? That book is fun uh, and interesting because it invites us to enter into this alien world, right? The particular alien world called piracy, right? Um, but, um, so here, the fundamental thing that Lewis is setting out to do is imagine space, right? Um, 1938. Brian, as you were saying, we have absolutely no way of knowing what space is like, right? What the experience of being in space would be like. What it would mean in a kind of a larger sense of like what it would mean, what it would mean, how it would affect, how would it affect our view of what it means to be human? How would it affect our view of the future of our species? How would it change our attitude towards terrestrial culture? All of these questions are really interesting questions, right? And those are all the questions that he is inviting by making it a space story, right? And don't forget the point that uh, David Erbach was making at the very beginning of class about the title of the book. Right? It's a great title. And one of the things that it does, right, one of the, uh, one of the effects uh, of the title, remember that the title is fundamentally a backward-looking title, Right. The book is all about space and it's all about the, 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 the events of the book are, in a sense, all outward focused. Right. Ransom being drawn out of the earth now having this experience where he's he's literally looking out the, you know, the window and seeing the earth 85,000 miles away. Right. Um, having this feeling, it's almost disembodied feeling. Right. As he's separated from planet Earth and in the vacuum of space. Right. Um so what is that, right? And how does it change our attitude towards the earth is one of the things that uh, is sort of implicit in that. So there's a whole sort of set of imaginative, um, of imaginative questions, right? Um, that uh, he is able to contemplate, right? That he's able to think about. And that's the important thing. So again, one of the things that sometimes people will read old science fiction and and either marvel at the things that they predict, like the technology that they predict when they're imagining what the future is going to be like, the predictions that came true. Like, I mean, there are a bunch of things like that. There are several things that um, uh, Ray Bradbury got eerily correct uh, in um, uh, Fahrenheit 451. I mean, that's that, uh, you know, like, there are some really eerie things that he that he was correct about uh, in that book. Um, and then and sometimes people will read other science fiction, you know, older science fiction authors and be like, OK, yeah, it didn't really pan out anything like that person was thinking. Right. And I get that. And that's it's not that that's not interesting to think about. But there is also a lot more to think about than just that. Right. These, these people who are writing these stories, these stories themselves these are not just predictions, right? Lewis is not here involved at all in guessing what space tra how space travel is going to operate or even necessarily guessing what it's really going to be like to be in space, necessarily, right? 
what he is doing is taking the premise of space travel in order to explore ideas connected with space, right? And so we start here with this first one, with this first basic cultural fear of space, right? Um, this sense of terror and awe that he has. Um, I alluded to Star Trek before. I kept coming. That was the other thing. The two, um, the two things that I kept, the two other texts that I kept coming back to in my mind while reading the first five chapters uh, uh, of this of this book this week uh, were uh, uh, Bunyan, um, uh, John Bunyan, and uh, Gene Roddenberry were the two that I kept coming back. I kept coming back to Star Trek and Pilgrim's Progress. Um, because I, I I find them both kind of interacting with it in very interesting in very interesting ways, um, yeah. Um, yeah. So Nancy, great question. Nancy says, "How do you get to that? How do you access his perspective when you like know all the spoilers?" Well, forget them. <laughs> forget everything you know about space. Forget everything you know about or everything you know or think you know about, you know, uh, uh, space travel and spaceships and uh, and all that stuff. Just focus on what Lewis emphasizes and tells us. Right. Focus on the ideas that he is exploring using space travel as a medium for this exploration. Right. Um, what are the mythic concepts that he's convinced? So here's our first one. But move on from here it's getting late we'll stop in a second but yeah star trek think of the mythic significance of the first words of the star trek opening space the final frontier the more i thought about it, i just kept coming back to that phrase in my head while reading this book this time and the more i think about it the more profound that shift seems to me um, shift from almost everything that Lewis is imagining here in 1938 um, Ransom certainly does not think of space as a frontier right um, yeah Colette says it must have been more fun to write a space story back when space was bl basically a blank slate. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, if you go to write a space story now, writing a space travel story now would be almost like writing a historical novel, right? J just as if you wanted to write a novel about ancient Rome, you would really need to do a great deal of research into what ancient Rome was really like. Right. I mean, there would be very clearly that expectation. You couldn't uh, you'd be on your story would be unlikely to be very successful if you let your imagination just wander freely around the vague associations and myths of Rome. Right. Uh, you, you'd need to do research. Right. Similarly, space travel now, like you'd need to know your subject. Right. You'd need to. Uh, you need to do research into what space travel is actually like and what that experience is actually like. It was a different, a different thing to write about uh, in uh, in in the 30s, and certainly, um, 
this is something that Lewis was really interested in and talked about. Um, I recommend to you, if those of you who don't know Lewis very well, if you're at all interested in this kind of topic in general, uh, Lewis wrote several uh, essays about nonfiction, about science fiction, rather, thinking about exactly this kind of thing. Um, and it's um, a, a lot of really interesting stuff. He actually does a categorization thing uh, where he, he, he breaks science fiction up into uh, several different subgenres. The one that he calls, uh, or the, the one, uh, the Larry Niven one, the one that I'm saying his work is completely not. Uh, he calls the uh, the fiction of the engineers, uh, which I think is <laughs> I think is a pretty good name for it. Um, anyway, yeah, um, cool. Uh, yeah, I selected literary essays. I think it would be in there, John. There are a couple published volumes in which you can find this. Um, sorry, I'm like looking at my bookcase across the. Uh, of Other Worlds, I think, is the one volume in which you can find several of his literary essays, and I think the science fiction stuff uh, is there. Um, yeah, anyway. Anyway, uh, some really uh, some really fascinating stuff. Um, there is also, by the way, if you are a dedicated audiobook person like I am, uh, they're also available on, on Audible. There are several different essay collections by Lewis available through Audible, uh, including... Of course, uh, the unabridged collection of all of his essays, which is like 37 hours long and you can get for one audible credit. Um, uh, anyway, just th throwing that out there in case you're an audiobook person. Um, okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Stephen. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, it, it definitely has it. In fact, I'm, uh, uh, I'm like uh, an eighth of the way through uh, the C.S. Lewis essay collection and other short pieces uh, on Audible right now. Uh, that's usually what I go where I go to after I finish reading the books. Uh, so yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, hmm. You know what? I should probably stop here. I should probably stop here. I was going to go on and do the next slide. I think I won't do the next slide um, because we're, in the next slide we're going to get into talking about the purposes of the journey and uh, Ransom's uh, perception of the purposes of the journey. Um, so um, let's, uh, let's, 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 let's stop there. We'll think about the, mm -hmm. the Malachandran stuff more explicitly as we get to where, and then of course we'll, we'll begin his, uh, his time on Malachandra uh, next time as well. So um, I think it's, this is a, this is a, this is a fine place uh, uh, to stop. So excellent. Okay. <clears throat> Very good. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Um, I will see you guys again next week, uh, and we will uh, uh, touch down in Malacandra here. Uh, thanks, everybody. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.